unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Missing in Action, Why You Should Care About Public Policy is the title of a new book by my guest on the show this week, Pranay Kotathane, and his co-author, Raghu Jaitley. What is the Indian state? How does it work? How does it fail? And how can it evolve? These are just some of the questions that this important new book tries to tackle. Unlike most books in this genre, it's written for the proverbial man or woman on the street. Refraining from jargon and acronyms to educate and possibly even to entertain readers interested in how policy is made. To talk more about the book and the lessons it holds, I'm pleased to welcome Pranay to the podcast for the very first time. Pranay, congrats on the book. Thanks, Milan, and glad to be on Grand Tamasha. I have been an active listener of the show, so so glad to be here talking about on the show as well. Thank you. Well, we we appreciate that very much, and uh, and, and it's so good to have you. I, I want to start, Pranay, by asking you a little bit about the overall kind of aim of the book, right? You, the very first chapter in the book is called Making Public Policy Interesting. Uh, but you know better than I that, you know, in any given year, there are no shortage of books published on Indian politics, on on policy, on the economy. Obviously, you and your co-author, Raghu Jaitley, felt something was missing from this discourse. Tell us a little bit about the sort of niche that you were hoping to fill with this book. Sure. Yeah. Actually, I think the number of books written on Indian public policy are quite few. Um, And especially the ones which try to uh, reach out to a broader audience uh, is even lower. So as you rightly said, the aim that we wanted to uh, accomplish was to address the other side of the policy pipeline. That is the people, the citizens or anyone who is interested in knowing more about India and the Indian state. Uh, why does it work the way it does? Why does it fail? Why does it sometimes succeed? Why does it sometimes fail? You know, just like India, the Indian state is so complicated. So the idea was, uh, can we explain that better? Uh, and that was the reason why we started this. So probably one of the things that I want to ask you about right up front um, is this really important, I think, important conceptual issue um, that leads to a lot of confusion in our daily discourse. Um, and you talk about the difference between a democracy and a republic, right? Now, if if you and I were to open up Twitter right now or look at the op-ed pages, you'll see any number of people arguing that, look, in a democracy, majority rules. And whatever the majority party in India decides to do, by definition, is legitimate. Uh, how would you respond to this way of thinking? How how do we think about the difference between these two things? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, and uh, the curious thing, uh, Milan, is that even sometimes when we celebrate our Republic Day, it is pretty similar to how we celebrate our Independence Day. You know, so there is no distinction. So uh, uh, one area that we've been interested in is always trying to talk about the importance of the Republic. You know, there's so much discussion on whether India has too too less democracy or too much democracy but 
people hardly discuss about the other part which is the republic and um, that's what our aim has been so uh, he, that the basic distinction uh, according to us is this that you know uh, first of all there's no sort of universal definition of democracy uh, but it literally means you know the rule of the people uh, as against the rule by a monarch right so in reality it can be defined as a rule by a majority now what constitutes a majority can vary but uh, at the bare minimum uh, democracy means that uh, when whatever the majority of the populace agrees to will be carried out by the state so that is broadly what democracy means so now if you take it to its ideal uh, type or the extreme scenario then in a pure democracy therefore the majority rules in all cases like you said and that's why the confusion arises from this so regardless of the consequences of the, uh, for the individuals uh, for those who are not in the majority right so for example uh, the city states in ancient greece were democratic right and so it was within the laws of the state for socrates to be killed through a majority sanction uh, it was a democratic decision in that sense right and this is what happens in our usual debates as well now that people can say you know things can be done just because 99% agreed uh, to do that but uh, that's the critical distinction india is not just a democracy india is a democratic republic you know it's the republic which says that uh, it prevents a majority from using its coercive power against individuals or groups with lesser power you know and uh, uh, this you know might come as a surprise to many people uh, and our civics education for example teaches us that a republic is merely a state where the leader of the government is not in a hereditary position right but that's not the most critical idea behind a republic in fact conceptually a republic is governed by a rule of law and not by a rule of men or women you know and this means that the supreme power in any republic uh, is uh, the law and not a monarch and that rule of law means that law also applies to uh, every citizen in the state including the pm the president etc right so it does not mean that the pm has the same power as i do but it does mean that the pm is bound by a rule of law which is written in a document uh, often in the form of a constitution uh, or a set of laws etc so that's what the republic is and a corollary of this is that a republic recognizes certain inalienable uh, and individual rights of citizens right so it says that no matter what even if 99.99% agree that you know wearing a blue t-shirt is evil and that should be punished yet you cannot do that unless it is prescribed in the law you know and uh, that's the critical difference and uh, that's how the indian republic uh, prevents the majority from running roughshod over a minority even if that minority is a single person and, and you know there's one axis of conflict which is between this this vision right of of, of democracy versus republic there's a, there's another axis of conflict which you talk about early on in the book which is over ideology and you know you point out quite rightly that in india there's no easy to discern kind of left right ideological spectrum like there might be, say, in the United States, right, in the United Kingdom. Um, and, and you say that one reason for this is because the country's core beliefs are to be statist, are to be socialist, and are to be conservative. 
But of course, there is ideological conflict uh, on identity grounds, which you acknowledge, right? And, and, and various people have tried to, to, to map this out. You know, Rahul Verma and Pradeep Chibber have a book where they, they talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the status of, 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 of the politics of recognition and the politics of statism. And you can plot political parties and political leaders according to these two axes. Um, but, but, you know, of course, religion uh, is the main ideological or identity cleavage, I should say, that seems to be salient today. Uh, where is this conflict, right? Because at one point in time, you could say there is a conflict going on between this kind of Neruvian, syncretic, liberal, secular vision and the kind of Savarkar vision uh, of, of kind of Hindu nationalism. Um, but it seems like this debate has moved into a direction which is more of the type of, well, what kind of Hindu vision we're going to end up with. Do you agree with that? Actually, not quite. I still believe there is that conflict uh, between the secular vision. And yes, there are varieties of uh, different kinds of majoritarian ideas. But the idea of the uh, secular uh, republic still holds. And, uh, you know, one way to recognize whether it is the grounds for conflict is to just see the daily debates, right? So the daily debates are still about this fundamental idea, right? If there were, uh, if there were no politics over it, then we would have, we could have made the assumption that, you know, actually, finally, the contestation is just behind different types of uh, Hindutva visions, but that's not clearly the case, right? So uh, the even the uh, uh, current debates are often about this fundamental idea that what should India be, right? And that just uh, tells me that, you know, still there are uh, debates across the board on this issue. Now, uh, uh, like you rightly said, yeah, left versus right doesn't make sense so much in India. And like, uh, Rahul's book does. Uh, in our imagination also, in fact, uh, there are two axes along which uh, if we were to draw an Indian political compass, which uh, uh, Nitin at Takshashila has done this. And uh, so there are two sort of axes uh, which he puts. One is on the identity uh, axis. So this identity can be not just religion. It can also be about linguistic identity or other identities. And the other axis would be liberty. Uh, so, uh, uh, so now if you look at these two axes, there are people you can place uh, and you can make boxes and there are uh, different kinds of groups you can identify, right? For example, someone might be a nativist on the identity scale, but might also have very high, uh, uh, you know, liberty uh, or ideas of freedom, whether it is economic, political or social, right? So uh, there can be various groups which might emerge on this. So left and right doesn't make sense. But yes, identity is a very important parameter, uh, along with how much liberty uh, people think others should have. I want to ask you, Pranay, uh, about the Indian state, because that's really what the core of, of, of the book is about. And, you know, one of the examples that you use to discuss your views on the state is the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I just want to quote something that you've uh, written with your co-author, where you say, while the first COVID-19 wave in April of 2020 gave a good glimpse into the nature of the Indian state, the second wave a year later in the spring of 2021 told us a lot about the size of the Indian state. Um, and I, I 
I find this a, an interesting and, and a bit of a, a thought-provoking passage. Tell us a little bit, if you could, you know, what you mean by these two responses, right? What did you see? What did you learn about the Indian state in wave one versus wave two? Sure, yeah. So uh, just to give a background, uh, in the first wave, uh, when there were around 500 cases, India, uh, the Prime Minister came on the television at 8 p.m. on national television and said, uh, from midnight, you know, there will be a lockdown for over two weeks. And then that lockdown kept continuing, you know. So, uh, yeah, so citizens just got a total of, uh, you know, four, grand total of four hours to comply with uh, a lockdown, which was national and so wide in scope, you know. So uh, that was the first wave. Uh, so uh, what we thought was it gives a glimpse into uh, the nature of the Indian state because there were a few things which happened. So, for example, uh, we saw that, uh, uh, you know, this Indian state can be called as the republic of no in the sense that the state is best when it has to stop something you know and people gladly accepted it there were there was a lockdown there were no protests uh, in fact even the migrants who were the most uh, adversely affected there were no protests they had to just they accepted their sad fate and walked away right you know so uh, the state had an immense power that we realized you know and when the state says something people just complied so that was one thing the other thing we learned from this was that the state is also instinctive so in the sense the, the consequences of the lockdown weren't fully thought through so for example what would happen to the migrants the people made thousands of kilometers of uh, they had to walk to their places so those things weren't fully thought through whereas uh, in uh, even the neighboring countries like Bangladesh the lockdowns were uh, planned in a more uh, sequential manner you know so that was the instinctive idea the third one was of course it was also sometimes the state came across as reflexively socialist you know so uh, for example uh, the government just declared that private businesses uh, had to absorb the pain, they couldn't fire people, uh, they urged all establishments not to reduce salaries, etc. You know, so this was just like the states saying that by diktat, we you have to follow some things, even though it is the state which gave four hours for people to go back home, right? So, um, anyway, so state is our troubleshooter, and whatever state does is right, you know. So, that was one predominant thing that came out from the first wave response of the Indian state. Now, <coughs> coming to the second wave, um, and second wave actually uh, was uh, much, much more severe. And as you know, lots of people died. And the reason was that we didn't have uh, oxygen cylinders. Uh, um, we didn't have uh, people being able to reach hospitals. There weren't enough hospital beds, etc. Right. So, the, what we came to know in the second wave was just how small the Indian state is. Now, this is also a quite counterintuitive uh, for a lot of people because the Indian state, the, the mental image that we have of it is, you know, lots of files and people uh, just uh, spending 
whiling their time away behind these files right but the idea is that the indian state is actually small on all important parameters that uh, are uh, really something that the state should be doing so whether it is num- uh, size by expenditure uh, size by employment size by capability we are small on all these parameters but yes what the state is big in is in ambition you know so the state has this very vast ambition with very meager resources and that often leads to us expecting the state to do great things uh, so there's a paradox between you know ambition and competence and there's a vast gap between it uh, and that was exposed uh, in the second wave uh, when uh, tragedy struck i i want to sort of bring the earlier democracy conversation together with this conversation about the state uh, in chapter 5 of the book you talk about this argument that you often hear uh, in india but also outside of india that you know india's problem is that it has has too much democracy and your response to this in the book is to say look india's real problem is not too much democracy it's really an overextended state that's weak right and as you said just now it, it's high ambition uh minimal capacity um now at one point you say look hopefully perhaps the covid-19 pandemic that kind of external shock could could be the sort of shock that's needed to to really get people's minds around this idea that you really need to invest in the building of a strong state right this particular government uh, has often talked at least in its rhetoric about the the need to refocus the state on a more streamlined set of core objectives so as you sit here today you know at the start of 2023 how do you assess the progress they've made toward this end you know do you think covid-19 is going to be the shock that will actually right the ship uh i really want to say yes but i would say uh not so much uh because um you know every policy domain is different so when you take talk about covid-19 and you would we all know that public health is one area where the state any state has a really really important role but in order for public health to become a priority you know a lot of things should have happened in the policy pipeline before that right so we should have had vigorous debates about what kind of health policy india needs we should have had a policy community built around it which has debated this for years committees formed which have proposed things and hence when the crisis hits uh, you already have a set of solutions which have been debated discarded uh, you know and some things bubble up to the top based on uh, this intense discussions Hey, Grant the Marshall listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Marshall, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. one of the most enjoyable chapters in the book at least from my perspective was the chapter on the tyranny of fixing prices right which is just sort of chock full of these amazing slightly depressing examples about how the state has you know repeatedly fixed prices and repeatedly gotten india into trouble one of the most telling examples you narrate is that of the delhi smog and i wonder just for the benefit of our listeners if you could help us understand 
what price fixing has to do with the toxic Delhi air, because I'm not sure a lot of people would make the linkage between the two. Everyone thinks that some price is right, you know, just like the salt in your biryani, prices should neither be too high or too low, they should just be perfect. And uh, that's a widely shared uh, belief uh, from the citizen side, you know, and that leads to uh, citizen demand. So the idea that prices are, in fact, a signal which align the uncoordinated actions of so many thousands and uh, millions of people is not so well understood. Uh, And if you have price fixing or price supports of various kinds, things can lead to adverse consequences is not something that is sort of broadly appreciated. So one example that we in fact found was from uh, Ashok Gulati, who's a very well-known agriculture economist. So he talks about this example and uh, we've tried to put that in our own words. So uh, now we know about Delhi smog, right? And uh, in fact, it was going on until... A month ago and people now know that uh, at least a part of it is caused by the crop residue which is burnt um, uh, on in Punjab right uh, so now the question is uh, if uh, if I am to pose this question uh, if that's the reason uh, the you just have to you know sequence the burning of those crops residue in a way such that you don't uh, end up doing all this at one point of time uh, and you can just remove the Delhi smog, right? But that doesn't happen. Uh, Why is that so? Because uh, it's not possible because there's a very short time in during which the people have to actually get rid of all their uh, crop residue. Uh, Now you would ask, why is that the case? That's because, uh, you know, the Kharif crop, that is paddy, it can only be sown after June 15. Uh, and that what that means is there's a delayed output which leaves farmer with very little time to clear the field before the winter crops can be sown, right? So, hence, they have very little period and the only way to get rid of the crop residue is just burn the cr- uh, residue as soon as possible. Now, the question you should ask is why is this arbitrary uh, deadline of June 15th? You know, why can't people just... Uh, keep the paddy, uh, sow the paddy crop earlier. Now, that's where, again, the government action comes in. So, government of Punjab actually passed a Punjab Preservation of Subsoil Water Act in 2009, which actually prohibits paddy transplantation before June 15th. Uh, and if the rule is violated, you know, paddy nurseries can be destroyed. Uh, you can, the electricity supply can be disconnected. Uh, there can be no electricity for tube wells. So there are severe consequences and generally people are complying to this. Now that should spark against uh, another question, right? Uh, what explains these rules prohibiting pa- paddy cultivation before June 15th? Now again, the reason is that ban is in- that ban is intended to save water during the peak summer season. So um, yeah, basically, paddy farms need uh, more water during summer times uh, due to ev- evaporation, and hence they said that you can't do this in the peak time of May uh, when the some May when summer is really really uh, peaking, right? So So now that in turn should make us ask that why are farmers actually growing rice in this area where there is such a severe shortage of water? 
and to which the answer is a price signal called as the minimum support price or MSP. Now, MSP is a government assured minimum price guarantee on the sale of particular crops and it is an assurement uh, it is the assured procurement of rice by government uh, which incentivizes the overproduction of rice even in areas which are not well suited to the crop so that is what happened you know and one can argue that at one point of time msp did make sense because uh, you know it started at a time when uh, people like paul elrich had written books like population bomb that india india and indians will die of hunger etc and the government said you know the one way we will uh, not do this is to incentivize growing of basic grains but what we didn't realize is that that action which didn't have any sunset clause which started this idea that there will be price support had long-term economic and ecological consequences and now we are seeing the result of that that because of that MSP the MSP has kept growing up uh, increasing and now it's no longer minimum support price sometimes it is maximum support price and what has happened because of that is this entire chain of events which in fact leads to exacerbation of the Delhi smog crisis. I mean it, it's a fascinating uh, fascinating interconnections, right, of, 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 of issues in the story about unintended consequences, you know, time and time again. I, I want to sort of maybe keep in, in this general domain uh, of economics by, by asking you about another distinction you make in the book, which is between pro-market and pro-business policies, right? And the way you sort of lay it out and the way I've, I've always understood it is that, look, pro-market policies help to create a level playing field for all firms. Pro-business policies are typically those that help establish powerful incumbents and they become more powerful, right? Um, you know, one of the, the big policy initiatives of recent years that, uh, that is worth mentioning is the PLI scheme or the Production-Linked Incentive Scheme. Um, uh, and the, I, the idea behind it, you know, is, is, is fairly simple. The government is going to reward companies for additional sales of manufactured goods with, with a cash back. And if you sell more in a particular sector, you get more cash back. Uh, and this is a, a pretty clear example of a pro-business policy, right? Where you're essentially going to subsidize particular you know, champions. Now, the government would probably admit that, look, yeah, this is a, a pro-business policy, but it's the first step. It's the first step towards creating a new market, right? Once we uh, seed these initial companies, seed these initial investments, a thousand flowers will, will, will bloom. So it, it's really just a matter of, of sequencing. You know, how do you see it? Is it possible that this pro-business outcome could lead to a pro-market one? Or are there dangers in, in, in thinking of it as a sequence thing? That is one big danger of any of these uh, uh, pro-business policies, right? So one thing is that there will be a false sense of achievement. You know, uh, the way we see it is that these are like uh, band-aids or bullet wounds. So maybe you need band-aid now because that's how the world is. But it doesn't mean it will solve your bigger problem. Now, if you see a lot of the challenges by businesses haven't come to India earlier are uh, challenges of, that we know of, right? The tough challenges of uh, 
unstable tax environment, policy environment, business environment, trade environment. And unless we solve those, uh, PLIs might just support for two, three years. But what happens after that? You know, what happens when PLIs are going to close and all PLIs are only for four or six years? What happens after that? So when a company makes a decision, they are going to make a decision for 10, 20, 30 years, not just for the three or four years when the government is giving some cash back. So that's one reason. And the second reason is that we know uh, from past experience against that, again, that when you have pro-business policies, the ones who get ben benefits, they always prevent those benefits from reaching to the broader market, right? So once you get a PLI policy, you will want to modify PLI so that uh, others uh, and your competitors don't get in. And that's a classic uh, unintended consequence that we know of, um, uh, which is called rent seeking. And it's not just unique to India, but it happens everywhere else. And that's why pro-business policies are uh, require very high state capacity in order for it to work well. And I'm not sure we have that uh, state capacity. I mean, it, it's a great reminder, Pranay, because I do think that whether it's explicit or not, uh, a lot of people in power today derive inspiration from the sort of, quote unquote, East Asian tigers, right? My, my, my favorite uh, kind of anecdote in this whole PLI world, I'm sure is one that you're familiar with. I first read about it in the column that Andy Mukherjee wrote for Bloomberg about how uh, the government had given a, a PLI subsidy to Hyundai uh, for, I think, battery manufacturing. And it turns out it was the wrong Hyundai. It wasn't the Hyundai <laughs> auto company, but another company called Hyundai. And of course, uh, it was quite embarrassing. And they had to, to later sort of walk that back. But it tells you a little bit about the kind of unintended consequences, I think, uh, when you're putting government in power. Absolutely, uh, Milan. And uh, see, the PLI would have made sense if we identify a, some limited number of strategic sectors and the government puts in money for a short time. You know, things which are really strategic from uh, either a geopolitical sense or for um, the future technology sense. But now we are seeing PLI across every sector. Now there are 14 PLIs uh, last I counted, including to things like textiles, you know, like, I mean, why do we need uh, PLI for textiles when this is the area which uh, was supposed to be one thing where which India was good at? So now it's just become a one-stop solution for every sector. Um, and that doesn't work. You know, we are still not removing the real cost disabilities uh, and the reasons why um, production in India is costlier. Those are not being removed. We are trying to... Uh, apply a bandaid on a bullet wound, as I said. You know, the, the the book is nothing if not a kind of clarion call for evidence-based policymaking, right? Uh, and one of the things you you, you write about, uh, uh, and you could you could you could note the concern uh, on the page, is uh, what we're seeing is, and I want to quote here, a more direct confrontation between the Western philosophical and scientific thought what is now often referred to as the Indic alternative. Um, and what I want to ask you is, you know, is this a case of basically, you know, the pendulum swinging one way and then just sort of kind of overcorrecting itself? Or do you think that there is going to be long-term lasting damage caused from this sort of anti-science, anti-evidence kind of, we will go on blind faith sort of view? <clears throat> yeah, no, I do think there will be 
there are losses to uh, these kinds of things uh, um, and over time um, yeah we now see a lot more noise about this so there is a section on ayurveda or especially uh, homeopathy etc in uh, the book as well a brief section so <laughs> there are uh, we do see you know some spurts uh, when these ideas again become popular uh, and that is the current moment but again i the way i see it is uh, again it is a lot to do with the social media environment that we are in uh, a lot to do with the fact that overton window on exactly any issue in the world has just been stretched you can have opinions on every particular topic in any way and you will still have followers and you will still have a reference network around it so what that leads to is uh, we feeling that there are uh new uh, we are regressing in a way to other ideas but i do think there are many many people on the uh, other side who would call it out as the, as they should um so that exists but uh, because of the media environment we do feel that you know uh, the world is regressing uh, to uh, older ideas sometimes uh, on the last page of the book Pranay, and maybe this is a way to kind of, you know, bring this conversation to a close. You have this very ominous statement uh, where you write the following, the coming together of three trends, an all-powerful and ideological new establishment that questions the choices we made at our founding moment, the shrinking of the quote-unquote middle space in public discourse, and relying on sentiment to defend questionable policies. These three portend a different social compact than what was established post-independence. Now, what's funny is when I when I read that, I was thinking about the United States uh, because, again, this is not something that's unique to India, right? I mean, this could apply to many other places. How do you think about the Indian case in comparative perspective? I mean, does it is there something happening in India that makes you more pessimistic? Do you think it's part of this, you know, some kind of global contagion? I mean, you know, how do you think about the current moment, uh, which you write so eloquently about in India? How does that match up globally? Yeah, again, yeah, I do feel it's not that India is unique in this case. It is uh, like uh, in uh, other parts of the world and other democracies, we are facing that challenge challenge of populism challenge of uh, questioning of the principles that actually made these democracies successful in the first place so a lot of those ideas are being called into question in india and uh, across the world so that is something worrying but i uh, am uh, an optimist and i do believe that a lot of uh, these ideas will run their course and uh, will get challenged you know and even in india there are uh, responses to e- each of these uh, challenges so that's where my uh, hope lies uh, but yes with that challenge is uh, not something which is uh, to be taken uh, lightly um, we are seeing that you know uh, the uh, people on the conservative side uh, uh you know imagining offenses dispensing punishment etc uh, often uh, and it's no longer the fringe you know so <clears throat> that is uh, something which is uh, challenging and very worrying uh, but also uh, there are people who are 
you know there there is a, a time frame to which you can use these issues you know beyond that people are also looking now at economic growth what are what is india uh, doing given uh, the world is uh, uh, looking beyond china as well in many ways so that's where i think a lot of checks would come from uh, people are asking questions on the economic side rather than the uh, religious and the cultural side and i hope with that we will uh, shift the political discourse more towards what the state should be doing rather than uh, letting the state go of uh, doing things which are not in its domain at all or debating what the state might have done in you know the the 15th century uh, uh just just to pick up on on one final thing you said you know uh on this question of sort of tolerance and discourse and speech right uh you do worry in the book that free speech is in for rough days ahead i think that's the phrase you use and it's not only because of right of center conservative rhetoric but also because of actions on the left right and i think a lot of the popular writing a lot of the books we've uh, you and i probably both read on indian democracy talk a lot about efforts on the right to shackle free speech just say a word a little bit about what worries you about what's happening on the left yeah no uh, the idea on the left is yeah somewhat similar to what you talked uh, in the american context that uh, the same uh, thing that uh, it's becomes an ideological purity test you know often that some people are not uh, left enough and hence they should be uh, challenged because of something they did in the past or supported a political party which now is doing uh, things that they don't like uh, and things like that right so it's an endless uh, ideological purity test and what it leads to is that the uh, number of people who are collectively opposing uh, you know people on the conservative side just keeps shrinking sharply you know because of this purity test and you keep calling out people who are on your own side uh, and uh, it just leads to narrowing down of the people who can actually stand up to people who are batting for majoritarianism right so uh, this is something which is there uh, and it's happening in india as well uh, another reason is that Uh, you know because of uh, social media again uh, what happens is that our reference networks are now global you know there is no issue which is local every issue by default is global uh, and that is where uh, again the both the left um, and right those those terms don't make sense in the indian context but conservative and extreme uh, left views both find global resonance of their ideas and because these are debates going on in us etc and we are so connected to the us debate so intimately connected that those debates come uh, here and they f- form a nice kichdi and we keep seeing those debates going on in various direction uh, it happened during the farm laws debate as well if you recollect My guest on the show this week is the scholar Pranay Kothasane. He and his co-author Raghu Jaitley are authors of a new book called Missing in Action: Why You Should Care About Public Policy. Pranay, this is a is a wonderful book uh and is such a well-written accessible book, which is, you know, uh going back to where we started, there there are books on public policy. A lot of them are not necessarily enjoyable accessible books. Um congrats on the achievement and best of luck with the book. Thanks. Thanks, Mila. 
Grand Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nitya Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.